This is not an easy experience and this is not fun, but it will definitely shape who you're going to be in the future. As millions of Ukrainians pour over the border into other countries, a Syrian refugee who fled her home reflects on the children's future. It's Friday, March 18th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead, refugees reflect on their past experiences. Also, air quality advocates hope that funds set aside under a Biden administration plan will help improve ventilation in schools. Creating healthy learning environments is really connected to health and academic performance. But many schools face major challenges in making these upgrades. And marking the 100th anniversary of the first bat mitzvah in the United States. It's 401. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S.-China relations are wading into even more sensitive territory because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. President Biden is warning China's leader Xi Jinping not to offer direct assistance to Russia's Vladimir Putin. NPR's Frank Ordonez has more on the White House's readout of the leader's lengthy talks this morning. President Biden and Xi spoke for nearly two hours. A senior administration official described the call as direct, substantive, and detailed. They spent most of their time on the video call speaking about the Russian invasion and the potential impacts it could have on U.S.-China relations. The official said Biden made clear that there would be consequences if China provided Russia with material support, but they did not outline what those consequences would be. Asked whether Biden asked Xi to intercede with Putin, the official said the president wasn't really making specific requests of China, but to give his assessment and that he would let China make its own decisions. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Hours before Biden and Xi spoke, a Chinese aircraft carrier sailed through the sensitive Taiwan Strait. In their call today, Biden told Xi that U.S. policy on Taiwan has not changed. Well, the search continues for civilians trapped in a bomb shelter in the southern Ukrainian city of Mariupol. NPR's Liulian Haida has more. Local officials say up to 1,300 people had been sheltering in Mariupol's drama theater when two bombs fell on the building Wednesday, destroying much of the main structure and caving in the entrance to the bomb shelter underneath. During an online press briefing, Ukraine's human rights commissioner, Lyudmila Denisova, confirmed that most survived the blasts. Denisova says that more people will die in the city if the rate of Russian shelling doesn't slow down. That's been preventing rescue workers from getting an accurate count of who's trapped and how many people may be dead. Local officials still won't say if anybody died as a direct result of the theater attack, as of Sunday, the city council reported at least 2,300 people have died in the previous two weeks. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Lviv, Ukraine. And now to the U.S., where the pace of home sales slowed a bit last month. NPR's Chris Arnold has details. After the housing crash for many years, we just did not build enough homes in the U.S. The National Association of Realtors says that short supply has helped push the median home price up to $357,000. And now with rising interest rates, that's a nasty one-two punch for first-time homebuyers. Lawrence Yoon is the group's chief economist. Compared to one year ago versus now, if they were to buy a home, their monthly mortgage obligation has risen essentially by 30%, uh, which is a drastic jump 
for people who want to buy. Economists say rising rates should stop home prices from rising so quickly going forward as builders try to catch up and build more homes. Chris Arnold, NPR News. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Massachusetts workers no longer have access to state-funded emergency paid time off. The program established in the coronavirus pandemic ended this week. WBUR's Lainey Ruxtall has more. Massachusetts COVID-19 emergency paid sick time program reimbursed employers for workers paid time off if they contracted COVID or needed to care for someone else who had. The state says it ended the program because it ran out of funding. Advocates like Jody Sugarman Brozan with the Massachusetts Coalition for Occupational Safety and Health are calling on Governor Baker to extend it. What this means is many workers will choose to go to work sick instead because they have no choice but to put food on the table. There is currently no pending legislation aimed at extending the program, but employers still have until April 29th to file for reimbursements. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. A Concord Middle School was closed today because of a COVID outbreak. The district superintendent says there have been 44 cases among Peabody Middle School sixth graders this week. 30% of all students were absent yesterday. Officials say today's closure will give students who are sick time to recover. The state will begin a review of the Boston Public Schools later this month. The Elementary and Secondary Education Commissioner Jeff Riley says it's a follow-up to a 2019 review that found a significant number of low-performing schools and inadequate services for students with disabilities. State education officials say Boston schools have made some improvements, but that there's still work to be done. New Hampshire's Republican governor says he will veto a congressional redistricting plan approved in the GOP-controlled legislature. The new plan would tilt the state's first congressional district, now held by Democrat Chris Pappas, toward Republican candidates. It would move some Democratic-leaning cities into the second district and move Republican towns into the first. Governor Chris Sununu says the map is not in the best interest of the state. Sports, the Red Sox and the Rays are playing in spring training baseball this afternoon and in the bottom of the ninth it's tied six to six in the forecast increasing clouds tonight the lows will be around 47 degrees showers with some thunderstorms possible tomorrow the highs will be around 57 partly sunny and breezy on sunday a high of 61 right now 74 degrees in boston we're funded by you our listeners and by fisher investments fisher investments is a fiduciary which means they always put clients interests first fisher investments clearly different money management investing in securities involves the risk of loss from npr news this is all things considered i'm juana summers and i'm mary louise kelly nita aljabarin has been watching the news out of ukraine the scenes of families pouring over the border more than three million since the russian invasion began three weeks and one day ago i see myself in these kids i went through this i exactly fear pain i know how that feels and i really hate to see other family like leaving home maybe like leaving part of their hearts in there. Nita fled her home in Syria when she was just 13. So she has an idea of what's next for Ukrainian kids whose lives have changed forever in an instant. This is not an easy experience and this is not fun, but it will definitely shape who you're going to be in the future and it will definitely teach you a lot. 
Nita is one of three people I talked with this week about the experience of being a refugee, what it feels like, how it shapes you. I'm Viet Thanh Nguyen. He fled Vietnam when he was four. He's now an author and professor. My name is Nida Aljabaran. We heard from her a moment ago. She left Syria as a seventh grader. My first name is uh, Maywand and my last name is uh, Basiri. A translator who'd worked for U.S. forces. He flew out of Kabul with his wife and son hours before the Afghan government fell to the Taliban. He loved his life there, he told me. My life was simple, beautiful life. I had a beautiful family. Simple is the same word Nita used to describe her life in Syria. It was very simple. Um, me, my parents, and my siblings lived outside of like a village, surrounded by like olive trees. We would walk to school every day. Um, it was very like simple, peaceful life. Viet doesn't remember much about his life in Vietnam, but there are things that nearly 50 years later stay with him. I'm not even sure that they're real, but the fragments I have are all actually mostly related to war, like meeting an American soldier bouncing on his knee or thinking I've seen a, a tank in the streets with uh, North Vietnamese soldiers on it because our town was the first one captured in the final invasion of 1975. For many Ukrainians right now, the decision to flee has been abrupt. One day you're safe, the next you're not. We heard that sudden urgency in the stories of each of the people we talked to, including my want. Tell me about the day that you left. Uh, it was very chaotic because before leaving Afghanistan, I was... Uh... Uh, I did not want to actually come to America because uh, I always thought that, you know, uh, life is uh, not easy, especially starting everything from scratch. Uh, but uh, provinces were falling and uh, areas were taken over by uh, the uh, Taliban. So uh, me and my family decided that I could be an easy target because I worked so long for the American forces. But uh, we did not know that it's going to happen so fast. Even when I got to the uh, airport, uh, I did not know that after 24 hours, everything will collapse. So did you know when you left that, that you wouldn't be going back, at least for, for a long time? Uh, no. Uh, I always thought, like in the back of my mind, I always thought that there's a bridge uh, that connects me back to my uh, home country. But uh, when I got to Doha... There, I saw in the news that what's going on in Afghanistan, and that moment I thought that that bridge that connects me back to my home country is destroyed for now. Oh. And you saw that where? On a, on a TV in the airport? or where? Yes, at the airport. I was waiting to uh, get to another flight from Doha to D.C., and uh, at the airport I did not have a phone to uh, call back uh, my parents, and I panicked. I borrowed someone else's phone and I called them and I said, what's going on? I want to come back. I don't want to go with my flight to all the way to D.C. And my parents said that don't worry uh, for right now. Nothing is, 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 is bad. And uh, you're uh, returning back to Kabul. It's not going to affect uh, anything. So uh, the better option would be to uh, go ahead and uh. Uh, go to America. So your instinct was I should go home. I got to get back to Kabul. And your parents were saying, no, go, go, go. Be safe. Yes. For Nita, it was war, but also a series of tragedies that pushed the family into leaving their home in Daraa, Syria. How did your family decide to leave? My family at first actually did not want to leave um, until um, one day my eldest brother got an asthma attack, and so we had to drive him to the hospital. And so 
that night i remember it was really tough because i could hear the shootings i could hear the bombings everywhere and so it was hard to leave the home and take him to the hospital and an hour away before we arrived there they stopped us and they told us that we can't enter the hospital because there's a lot of bombings so my brother ended up passing away before he got to the hospital and then a few months after my dad also got shot in his leg and then our neighbor's house got burned out with the people in them and so that point really my parents were like yeah we can see our like how it's gonna keep going so oh my the, gosh my dad made the decision like the night before we left and then i just woke up like four in the morning and my mom told me yeah today we have to leave so we just took like few clothes with us and then i remember there was like a van and there was a full of people like there was already six families in there and we were just all like squeezing in there and we had to like be covered so <laughs> no one can catch us we sneaked out of syria to al zatari camp this is in jordan yes both nita and viet ended up in refugee camps after they left their homes you arrive, Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. This is summer of 1975. What's your first memory there? What do you remember? I remember the barracks and of course when you're young and your parents are taking care of you and you're surrounded by other children, it can actually seem like fun, uh, a fun kind of a camp. But of course that wasn't the reality and uh, I, I've certainly seen photographs in retrospect of a time in those camps and there were lots and lots of people, uh, our lives were completely displaced. People had lost everything, so the pictures show people just trying to adjust to their new realities when their new realities were really devastating. People who'd lost everything. That's a pretty good description for what Nita's family faced, too, in that refugee camp in Jordan. They gave us, like, a tent and some blankets, food, um, and they told us, yeah, this is your new home. And I was like, no way. <laughs> this is not where I want to live. But it was... I was thankful that I was able to escape out of the war. It was, I was just like, at that point in my life, I, I was just so sad. I, I was like, this is it. Like, I left my rest of my families. I left my cousins. I left my uncles. What What is this? There's no friends here. There's no family here. But but you were you were safe. Yeah, I think my I was like I think my parents made the right decision. Even the right decisions come at a price. But each of the people I talk to has built a new life. Nita will graduate from Syracuse University in the spring having studied pre-med. She wants to work with refugees. My wand is helping other refugees get settled here in the US with Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. And Viet won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and is a professor at the University of Southern California. California. All are settled now, but their identities will forever be tied to being a refugee. And that's on each of their minds as they watch the images of people leaving Ukraine. When I see children are suffering, when I see women and elderly are suffering, it gives me all the images that I have uh, uh, from my own country. And uh, as a human being, wherever we are, if you're in America, if you're in Europe, uh, we should have open arms for the Ukrainians and we should feel their pain. And I can feel their pain uh, more than anyone else because uh, I come from a country that's been torn apart by war. So uh, I urge uh, people to uh, have respect for the refugees that they arrive in seeking refuge, looking for a safe future. I can only say to them that I feel for them. I've been in their place and it's a place of terror 
because you've lost so much, you've left so much behind, and you don't know what the future holds for you. And none of us knows what the future holds for them. But I would say that uh, looking at my own experience among Vietnamese refugees, many of us remain traumatized by what happened, but as a community, we, we survived and we, we built new lives and we were able, we are able to tell our own stories and claim our own voices. Part of the story is that not all refugees have been welcomed with open arms. That is something Nita noted. Refugees are refugees regardless of where are they came from or what color is their eyes or how they look. I think all refugees just should receive the same respect and help from anywhere they go to. It shouldn't be like more sad to see Ukraine's refugees than Syrians or anywhere else because at the end, we're all humans. The task ahead for the humans rushing out of Ukraine is rebuilding their lives, finding a sense of place, of home. I questioned Nita and my wand about that. If I were to ask you, where is home? What would you say? Where is home? Where is home? Home is where you're safe, you're secure, and you're not worried that something's going to bad happen to your family. That's home. Does America feel like home now? Yeah. Honestly, if we are going to define home at first, it's the place that provides you with security, it provides you with all the resources that you need to grow up. The refugees leaving Ukraine must look forward to new homes for now, even as the ones they've left behind, the country they've left behind, still call. Nita wrote about that in a poem, and she shared it with me as we concluded our conversation. I set a foot in the street, not knowing why my body needs. My thoughts fight among themselves, bleeding into tears. I don't recognize the look in my grandfather's eyes. He looks as if he's about to face his worst fear. The fear turns into a teardrop. He takes his glasses off, but the tear is stubborn. It refuses to leave his face. Oh, grandfather, our house key is lost, and the doors cry for those who left. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 74 degrees in Boston at 418. Ahead on All Things Considered, improving air quality in schools can be expensive, so advocates hope money set aside under the Biden plan will help. That and more ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. In business news, schools and businesses that stock Massachusetts-based hood milk products could see a shortage. The company temporarily shut down all its plants earlier this week. Hood officials say the company's network was the victim of a cybersecurity problem. During the shutdown, Hood was unable to process milk and needed to dispose of some milk products. 
Wall Street stocks ended the week higher. The Dow up 273 points, or three-quarters of a percent, at 34,754. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Coming up this Monday, join us for a conversation with Biplaw Rye and Kwesi Kwa of Comfort Kitchen, a restaurant celebrating food of the African diaspora. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all of their job openings. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. From Clavio, working to help brands deliver personalized email and SMS campaigns that drive revenue and create genuine customer relationships. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Let's face it, two years ago, if I started talking about ventilation, you might have just yawned and tuned me out. But the COVID pandemic has highlighted just how much the air we breathe matters, especially in our schools. Air quality experts say the health benefits of better air quality go far beyond COVID. But many schools face major challenges when it comes to making these upgrades. NPR's Maria Godoy has more. Having a little bit of technical difficulty, as you can hear, getting that Maria Godoy piece to play. Bear with us one second. Nearly with you. Not many people can say the pandemic has made their job easier, but in some ways, Tracy Washington Enger can. You know, it, it is such a hallelujah moment. Absolutely. Enger works at the Environmental Protection Agency's Indoor Environments Division. For more than 25 years, she's been fighting to improve the air quality inside of America's schools because the benefits of doing so are well documented and substantial. When a room is better ventilated, influenza rates drop, the number of asthma attacks go down, reading and math test scores go up. One of the things that has been a real mission for us has been to help schools recognize that creating healthy learning environments is really connected to health and academic performance. But there are lots of competing demands for limited school budgets, and getting school districts to focus on indoor air quality hasn't been easy. 
Often, she says, it took some kind of crisis. When they found the mole problem, when their asthma rates were kind of going through the roof, then they started to seek out that kind of help with indoor air quality, and they would, and they would find us. Then came the COVID pandemic, spread by virus particles that can linger in the air. The key to clearing out those infectious particles, good ventilation and air filtration. Suddenly, finally, lots of people have started to pay attention to indoor air quality. And it's about time, says Joseph Allen. He directs Harvard's Healthy Buildings Program. The way we design and operate our buildings has been an afterthought for too long. Even though, Allen says, the health and academic benefits of good ventilation in schools have been seen repeatedly in different countries and ages. We see benefits in kindergartners, we see benefits in high schoolers, we see benefits in college students and middle schoolers, every age group. Allen says understanding these wider benefits of better ventilation beyond COVID is vital. I'm a parent. You think about all the things we do to help our kids succeed. But to think that the air quality in their school and other factors like acoustics and lighting are all influencing their performance, but we just don't pay attention to them. It's a gross oversight, and it speaks to our neglect of school infrastructure that has gone on for too long. That's why Allen applauded the new emphasis on school ventilation in the Biden administration's national COVID-19 preparedness plan. The plan encourages schools to improve air quality using funds from the American Rescue Plan Act. Anissa Hemming of the Center for Green Schools says one third of all schools have outdated HVAC systems. Some don't even have mechanical systems to bring in fresh air. Surveys conducted by the center find that that aging infrastructure has been a major obstacle to improving air quality in schools. We keep hearing the same challenge, which is that school buildings are in bad shape. And so they need, in some cases, pretty major renovations in order to implement some of these recommendations. But that kind of work takes months of planning. There's no clear data on how many schools have made ventilation upgrades so far. But the EPA's Tracy Enger says interest in the agency's guidance for schools has soared in the past year. Finally, she says, people are coming to the mountain. What we are seeing is this moment turning into a movement for improving indoor air quality in schools and creating healthier learning spaces. A February analysis found school districts already have plans to spend more than $4 billion in federal relief funds for HVAC upgrades. While that's just a fraction of the spending needed to get schools in good condition, many agree it's a step in the right direction. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Dom DeMarco, founder of the beloved Brooklyn Pizzeria DeFara, has died at the age of 85. Emily Lang of member station WNYC talked to local pizza makers about his legacy. Dom DeMarco immigrated from Caserta, a small province in Italy known for its lush palace gardens. In Brooklyn, DeMarco created his own royal garden of basil in the windowsill of the pizza shop he opened in 1965. He snipped sprigs of basil on top of almost every pizza with a swig of fragrant olive oil from a can that looked like something you would water flowers with. The way the sun would come through the window and it was just him back there and you know, whether it was like a basil plant in the window or pepper plant. That's Mark Iacono, a pizzaiolo and founder of Lucali, an acclaimed pizza joint in Carroll Gardens. Iacono represents the feelings of a lot of pizza aficionados. Robert Tsitsima is a senior food critic at Eater New York. He says DeMarco changed the landscape for an industry of mainly immigrant-run neighborhood slice joints. 
that sort of pizza parlor arose in the 1950s, often started by people that were either refugees from the Second World War or had been servicemen. All over Brooklyn in particular, pizzerias were established on pretty much every block, and nobody even paid attention to them. Sitsima says up until a few years ago, DeMarco made every pie, taking each one out at least three times to turn them and gradually top them with buffalo mozzarella. He began to popularize it, and pretty soon people from all over the city were coming to taste his pizzas. Nick Baglivo is a manager of Lit Industria Pizzeria in Williamsburg. He says he had a near religious experience at Defaro when he was a teenager. I remember as a kid, you know, my cousin took me there when I was like 12, 13 years old. We waited online. I got to see him and I got to eat his pizza, his sauce, fresh basil, olive oil, and like Parmesan on the pizza. But DeMarco's contribution goes far beyond that crispy bite of charred thin crust, even for pizza makers who've never tasted it themselves. Nicole Russell runs Last Dragon Pizza. Give that man his flowers like a bouquet of basil, like a bouquet of flowers. And don't forget the fragrant olive oil. For NPR, I'm Emily Lang in New York. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 74 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, a fourth day of peace negotiations ended with no breakthrough. Ukraine's president said workers continued rescue efforts at the Mariupol Theater where scores of civilians were sheltering. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast... We'll have clouds coming in tonight, lows around 47, showers and some thunderstorms tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at sullivantire.com. And Point 32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. China is cracking down on cryptocurrency mining, so the miners over there are moving over here. And the opportunities seem promising. I think of the rainbow, Lucky Charms, right? And it's like, holy cow, we have found it. I'm Kai Rizdal. Crypto moves from east to west. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The United States and Western allies slammed Russia today for spreading propaganda and disinformation at the United Nations Security Council by alleging that parts of biological weapons were being made in Ukraine. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Russia is once again attempting to use this council to launder its disinformation, spread its propaganda, and justify its unprovoked and brutal attack on Ukraine. 
Russia called the meeting today to replace a planned vote on a Russian-drafted call for aid, access, and protection of civilians in Ukraine. Britain's UN Ambassador Barbara Woodward calls Russia's move disinformation of the desperate, saying it's nonsense. Britain's broadcasting regulator Ofcom pulled the United Kingdom's license of the Russian state-backed television network RT. Villa Marks reports the UK declared RT's parent company was, quote, not fit and proper. In recent weeks, Ofcom launched more than two dozen investigations of RT broadcasts after complaints that its coverage of the Ukraine invasion had been insufficiently impartial. The European Union had already banned the channel, forcing satellite companies in Luxembourg and France to block RT's transmission to UK viewers. But the country's culture minister said at the time she hoped the network would not return to British television screens, labelling it Putin's polluting propaganda machine. Ofcom said RT's relationship to the Russian government was part of its decision. RT has responded by calling Ofcom, an independent regulator, a tool of the British government. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 274 points, stand at 34,754. The Nasdaq gained 279 points to end the day at 13,893. That's up just over 2%. And the S&P 500 up 51 points to end at 44.63. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The outdoor dining program in the North End will get off to a late start. The city planned to begin allowing North End restaurants to have outdoor seating on April 8th. But the city has delayed the start in that neighborhood until May 1st. And at last night's and last night, the city announced that residents there will have to pay a $7,500 fee to host outdoor dining. Bob Luz of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association says the fee came out of nowhere. North End community, and, and I would say rightly so, is, is very up in arms. But two weeks before uh, they're getting ready to open, they, they find something like this out. The city says money from the fee will be used to offset problems associated with outdoor dining. It has formed a committee to oversee how the money is spent. Students at Emerson College and Boston College will be paying more tuition in the fall. Emerson is upping tuition and room and board charges 2% for undergrad and graduate students. At Boston College, those costs are going up over 3.5% for undergrads. Both schools say they are expanding financial aid. State wildlife officials have been testing deer shot by hunters in the state for COVID-19. And new figures show around 15% of the deer sampled have tested positive for antibodies, indicating that they had the illness at one point. State deer and moose biologist Martin Fian says the testing is designed to see if the coronavirus might mutate in the animals. He says another focus is to try to determine how deer contracted the virus. We collected our samples the first week of December predominantly, and at the time, the Delta variant was the most common variant within the human population. And with the results, when they sequenced some of the nasal swabs from the deer, they found uh, the Delta variant. He says there is no evidence that the virus can be transmitted to humans through the consumption of venison. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is introducing legislation to build a reliable electrical grid that can deliver clean energy. Markey says the power line system will supply parts of the country that need better access to renewable resources, lower costs, and support innovation. The senator calls it a significant step toward supporting electric-powered vehicles and buildings. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 47 degrees. Showers with some thunderstorms possible tomorrow. The highs will be near 57. Partly sunny and breezy on Sunday. The high around 61. Sunny and windy on Monday. The highs will be around 55 degrees. 
on Tuesday. It should be sunny. The highs will be around 51. Right now, it is 74 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Aspiration, working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There was more bloodshed in Ukraine today as Russian forces struck targets in the capital, Kyiv, as well as cities in both the eastern and western parts of the country. A fourth day of peace negotiations ended with no breakthrough, and Russia, for the first time, directly struck the western city of Lviv, hitting a military building next to the airport. NPR's Eric Westervelt has the latest. Russian forces on the ground continue to make little or no headway, especially in the capital, Kyiv, in the face of strong, ongoing Ukrainian resistance. But Russian missiles and artillery continue to wreak deadly havoc. The mayor said shelling and mortar rounds hit parts of the capital, including a neighborhood close to central Kyiv, wounding at least 19 people. In Kharkiv, in the east, the Ukrainian government says 10 people were killed in an attack on an apartment complex. And Mariupol, in the southeast, is now a devastated city. Father Rustislav Sprunyuk, a Ukrainian-Greek Catholic priest, just escaped Mariupol after enduring weeks of shelling, hardship, and horror. You see cars destroyed, lots of people in a panic, people completely disoriented, people, women and children, with one goal only, to go to Ukrainian-held territory and continue to leave towards the West, even outside of Ukraine. Rescuers are still trying to reach people believed to be trapped in a theater that was bombed on Wednesday. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said Friday 130 people have so far been recovered alive from that site. But information on the rescue effort is scarce. It's still not clear how many may have survived. Continued shelling, the Ukrainians say, is hampering rescue efforts. Here's Ukraine's human rights ombudswoman, Ludmila Denisova, speaking through an interpreter. We only know that uh, 100 sided people have been freed and uh, we still have um, about 1,000 people, 1,300 people left there. So we don't know uh, what the result of the shelling is going to be finally. Father Rustislav, who also works with the Catholic charity Caritas, says that kind of attack is sadly normal now in Mariupol, where he says there is no civilization left. Russia attacked illegally, in a very fascist manner, in a Nazi manner. They destroyed peaceful residents with no regard for anything. They're hitting hospitals, schools, bomb shelters. They're destroying everything. Meantime, here in the western part of the country, Russian cruise missiles hit a fighter jet military repair facility on the edge of the airport, just four miles from Lviv's center. The buildings were largely destroyed. One person was wounded. This first Russian attack on the city proper unnerved residents and the scores of displaced Ukrainians who have fled fighting in the east for the relative safety of Lviv. The city's also been a hub for international aid. Diana, who gave only her first name, moved in with family near the airport after fleeing violence in Eve, she says she and her daughter were jolted out of bed by the attack. The entire building shook. The glass and the window shook. 
It was very unpleasant. We left Kiev because it got very hot there, so we came here. But it's obvious now that we can't stay here because we don't know what will be next. The FN Havlahov, who also lives very close to the airport, gently pushed his grandson on a swing in a small park. He said he was awoken by screams from family members as the apartment shook. We all heard the explosions, and I heard screaming in the room next door, and that's when we all ran into the bomb shelter. Halahov says he has no plans to move, but Deanna, pushing her distraught toddler in a stroller, says she's now contemplating joining the more than three million Ukrainians who've already left. Her husband's back in Kyiv fighting. What can we do, Deanna says anxiously. We don't know what will fall on our heads next time. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Lviv, Ukraine. In the Arab world, Lebanon has the fastest growing proportion of senior citizens compared to any other country. And one Lebanese institution wants to make sure people get the most out of their later years. People like Suma Rifai. I have two kids. Um, you can't say that I'm a certified mom. Two kids she's raised on her own. She also takes care of her aging parents and two dogs. To be honest with you, the thing is that um, I've always wanted to go for a high education. When Rafai was in her late 40s, she applied to a university for older people called the University for Seniors in Beirut. That's where she lives. And um, I was shocked because they refused my application. They said, you're too young to, to join us. <laughs> so she waited a few years and joined at the age of 53. That's Rafai speaking Arabic in one of her classes. I was always saying, okay, learning now at this age, I cannot do this. But it turned out gave me hope. It's really giving me the push. The University for Seniors is for students ages 50 and up. And I'm going to bite my tongue and try not to take issue with the characterization of 50 years old as senior. Maya Abishahin, who manages the program, says the vision is to portray a positive image of aging. One where older adults remain active and engaged as they age, active uh, mentally, physically, and socially. Prior to the pandemic, classes were held at the American University in Beirut. On campus, seniors rubbed shoulders with college-age students. Now, that mingling happens online during lectures. You have music and art. You have uh, travel talks about countries. That's Jacques Akmekchi, who's 77 years old and a student. He says it's fun. Sometimes, you know, you have parties every other week. We have, you know, a Zoom party. Oh, yeah. Parties in class, Zoom parties in class. Well, Ekmekchi was a civil engineer for 50 years. It gives you a real space for growth in certain areas that you never thought of. It's also been space for growth of his social life, especially since he's been laid up at home after back surgeries. Sometimes you find people that you haven't seen them for ages and you interact with them, you talk with them afterwards. Meanwhile, Suma Rafai can't wait to talk in person back on the American University campus. I believe it's a, it's a must for the new generation to see us on campus. For them, they have to see that the hope is there. The hope, says Rifai, is that no matter how old you are, you can always be a student.
Support for All Tech Considered comes from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. Designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. On school days around the U.S., 26 million students ride buses to and from campus. School districts and private bus companies are now facing rising gas prices. In the last few weeks, the cost per gallon hit a record high. As as New England Public Media's Jill Kaufman reports, the high prices are hurting budgets. McCarthy's Bus Company has a fleet of 150 of those well-known yellow school buses. In a single day, they cover more than 1,000 miles around the mostly rural parts of central and western Massachusetts. It's all hands on deck from time to time. John McCarthy's father launched this operation in the 1950s with just a couple of buses, and it remains a relatively small family business. My sister drives for me. My mother-in-law drives for me. My wife does the payroll. My ex-wife drives for me. And daily, someone is at the pump. And we actually have a person that that's, that's literally all they do is fuel buses. On average, McCarthy's buses get seven miles to the gallon. The cost of that diesel rose 40% in the last few weeks. And now it's contract bidding season, and McCarthy has proposals to write. He forecasts labor and fuel costs three years out. It could be worse. The fuel wholesaler could be locking in today's price. It's a little bit of a gamble because you can buy 100,000 gallons at the wrong price, and then, you know, that's it. Michael Martin says about 500,000 school buses are on the road daily during the school year. Martin is the executive director of the National Association of Pupil Transportation. This price increase probably couldn't have come at a worse time. In the spring, schools have far more field trips and sporting events. About a quarter of American school districts outsource their transportation needs to private bus companies, and the rest own their own buses, and they have to maintain and fill them with fuel. We're kind of talking in many respects about two completely different approaches to uh, fuel purchasing and or operational implementation. State to state, it's a patchwork of different taxes and surcharges. I'm in touch with districts all across the state, from uh, Cape Cod out to Pittsfield. Drew Damien is president of the Massachusetts Association of Pupil Transportation, and he also runs the buses in the Palmer School District. His bus company contract has a typical clause that when fuel prices go up or down, the district will pay more or get a refund. On the day we spoke, Damien had just received an invoice with his fuel adjustment costs from last month. Another $1,000, Damien says, about $100 more per bus per month. And I'm sure that that's the smallest one I'm going to see in the next couple of months anyway. The school buses of the future may be electric, and some districts do have a few, 
but the majority of buses? They are definitely not fuel efficient. I mean, amongst everything else, they are as aerodynamic as a filing cabinet. School districts always budget for a bit of price volatility, Damien says. But to save money, some bus routes may have to be cut or combined. He says transportation officials are going to have to be very creative, like they have been during the pandemic. For NPR News, I'm Jill Kaufman. Today on NPR's Consider This podcast, Asian Americans reflect on anti-Asian hate one year after the Atlanta spa shootings. I just remember being in such shock and then being overcome by fear that it could possibly have happened to me. And then, of course, there was that feeling of anger. That's on Consider This. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 73 degrees in Boston at 448. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman about diplomatic efforts in the war in Ukraine and U.S. aid to the country. That's just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. In sports at spring training at Fort Myers, the Red Sox came from behind to beat the Tampa Bay Rays this afternoon. 7-6 to six was the final score there. Celtics will take on the Kings out in Sacramento tonight. The Bruins are in Winnipeg. Well, they'll be taking on the Jets. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 47 degrees. Showers with some thunderstorms possible tomorrow. The highs will be around 57 Partly sunny and breezy on Sunday, a high around 61 degrees. Sunny and windy on Monday, the high will be 55 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th semesteroff.com and Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Forester and Outback Wilderness Edition. Available now. CitysideSubaru.com Strong doesn't mean weak. Strong is brave and ready to fight for the life of his citizens and citizens of the world. Ukraine's President Zelensky asked for more help. What he got? What he didn't. We'll have the latest from Ukraine and kidney donors and recipients in a 10-way chain of life. Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang with the final story in our series about this year's first-time Grammy nominees. This one involves a TikTok fairy tale of sorts, which begins with a posh afternoon in London's West End last November. We literally had just got finished making TikToks with Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I was like, that was surreal in its own right, of course. That's composer Emily Bear and singer Abigail Barlow of the musical duo Barlow and Bear. These 20-somethings had grabbed the attention of Webber and the whole musical theater world with their album, The Unofficial Bridgerton Musical. It was a musical inspired by the Netflix period drama Bridgerton. This is what you call a honeymoon. Pacing around our separate rooms. Running from our elaborate ruse. We do. On a lark, they had submitted the album for Grammy consideration. And the evening when nominations were coming out, 
they stuck around at Weber's Story. theater for high tea. high tea. And like all the biscuits and little cakes and stuff she around. I, I was so nervous, I, I could was, not eat. Yeah, she was so nervous she couldn't eat and I was stress eating, so. As the musical theater category was announced, Barlow and Bear went live on TikTok. Steven Schwartz snapshots, and finally the unofficial Richardson. And then we started bawling. Barlow and Bear are the only women nominated in the Best Musical Theater Album category this year, and they're facing some Broadway greats like Steven Schwartz and Yes, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Their album, it's also unique because they composed many of the songs live on social media, with fans offering and running commentary during the hours-long live sessions. Nothing but a whisper is a shout. It's a buzz about the time. Nothing like a scandal. We wanted to see how the magic happens. IRL. So we met Abigail Barlow and Emily Bear at their shared studio in Bear's apartment in yeah. central Los Angeles. Uh, what keys it in? Colored and green, gilded and gold. I, love <laughs> I feel like I'm living in a musical right now. <laughs> My life is a musical these days. <laughs> I guess I have to be a lady, smiling and waving, constantly obeying. I guess I okay. So Bridgerton, this Netflix show, it comes out around Christmas of 2020. People, they just like get addicted to this show. I got immediately, I was gonna ask, did you guys get drawn in immediately? Yes. I mean, we are quite literally the target audience. Yeah. <laughs> I think everybody just got so into it because it was a departure from the world we were living in at the moment, which was really not about getting together. It was very low. Also like the previous year and a half for Abby and I, like, oh. Career, just career speaking was rough. What do you mean? I got ghosted by like every single major record label that was interested in me and it was just no after no. I think we were just barely getting by before we had this idea for Bridgerton. I didn't know any of your maids were married. She's not married. She's not married? So then at one point, Abigail, I'm gonna fast forward to January of last year, right? Just a few weeks after the show comes out, you post this video on TikTok asking the question. Okay, but what if Bridgerton was a musical? <clears throat> what a beautiful party. Were you actually serious at that point? I really just wanted to write a song. I was actually experiencing writer's block for like three or four months before I wrote that song. And when I watched Bridgerton, there was an overwhelming feeling it was perfect for stage. A lot of drama, escapism, a character for everyone to relate to. And so I sort of, I was half serious. I was like, if people like this idea, maybe it'll be a TikTok series. Maybe I'll do it for more than one character. But honestly, it was just a songwriting challenge to put myself in someone else's shoes, even if that wasn't a make-believe character. When we were writing the opening number, we watched that opening scene so many times because it's theatrical. It's so theatrical. We had like a moment we wanted to write about in the show. So we kind of watched that moment and then we were sort of playing around with different ideas. 
Um, I mean, when we were writing this, we were going live every day on TikTok and Instagram, and where they could literally just see everything that we're doing in real time. So, like, are you literally watching the live video feed and the comments coming through? Yeah. So it was like almost like we were workshopping yeah. instantly. Yeah. They did not see the strangers. Yes, exactly. Like they did not hold back when they didn't like something either. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of the times it's we have sort of a melody that we like, and we're kind of going back and forth on the lyrics to just make something that sounds right, that feels good to sing. So like, I knew we had the da 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 da. And um, then we sort of started working on the lyrics with the audience and kind of workshopped a bunch of them. I knew I had, he'd be the artist and I'd be the brush. And then we were like, when someone said gilded and, or something gilt, I don't remember exactly what they said, but something along the lines of that. Colored in green and gilded in gold. Ooh. Mm. Covered in green and gilded in gold. Colored, colored in green and gilded in gold. That's cool. Yeah, that is cool. Because we were thinking, wow, these two people obviously have such tension right now and they want to be with each other, but they can't. And so they could if they escaped into one of these beautiful paintings and like lived in this dream world that doesn't exist. Yeah. You see all this art in the world, but no one really kind of pulls that curtain back. And a lot of people don't know what it means to write a song and what it means to develop a project or, you know, all of the above. And so I feel like just showing every bit of the process, including the ugly bits, was interesting to people. I mean, I'm thinking maybe there are some musical theater fans of a certain generation that would turn their noses up at some musical on TikTok. Sure. And, they, you know, they would say that a lot is actually lost because it's not on a real stage in a theater with actual human audience members watching you. What would you say to those critics? Um, I'd say that musical theater is a very uh, classically gate-kept art form. You know, it's very expensive to go to a Broadway show. It's like 200 bucks a ticket. And so it might not be the same as being on a stage, for sure, but it is definitely exposing a younger audience to a different kind of music and a different kind of storytelling, and I think that's important. I walk past the doors and the corridors where they grew. Well, do you hope to see the unofficial Bridgerton musical on an actual stage one day? Duh. <laughs> that's the dream. We've got so many stories to tell together, so, you know. Yeah, this is not the last you'll see of Barlow and Bear, and it won't be the only thing, if it is on a stage, that we'll have on a stage. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, 
a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up in the next hour of All Things Considered, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman talks about diplomatic efforts in the war in Ukraine and U.S. aid to the country. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 47 degrees. Showers with some thunderstorms possible tomorrow. The high near 57. Partly sunny and breezy on Sunday. The highs will be around 61 degrees. Sunny and windy on Monday, a high of 55. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I have tens of thousands of dollars in savings, and it feels like it's nothing. It doesn't matter. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, making it more expensive to borrow money in many ways. Those trying to purchase a house may feel the squeeze. It's Friday, March 18th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also ahead, we'll have a conversation with Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman about diplomatic efforts in the war in Ukraine and U.S. aid to the country. New research shows the chances of getting long COVID are lower for those who have been vaccinated. And March Madness, the NCAA's men's and women's basketball tournaments, returns to normal as fans are back at full capacity. But the celebration may be tempered by sobering world events. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations says Russia is using its position on the Security Council to spread lies and disinformation. Russia calling a meeting today to talk about its allegations Ukraine has a biological weapons program. As NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The U.N.'s High Commissioner for Disarmament Affairs says there's no evidence of a biological weapons program in Ukraine. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield echoes that, saying Russia is spreading, as she puts it, bizarre conspiracies and lies and may have called the Security Council meeting as a, quote, false flag. Russia has repeatedly, repeatedly accused other countries of the very violations it plans to perpetrate. Thomas Greenfield says the U.S. believes that Russia may be planning to use chemical or biological agents to justify an escalation of the war in Ukraine. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Russian President Vladimir Putin appeared at what is being described as a large rally in Moscow where he praised his country's troops as they continue an increasingly lethal assault against Ukraine. Some 200,000 people were reportedly in attendance at a stadium today marking the 8th anniversary of Russia's annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. Russian forces continue to pound the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, and launched a barrage of missiles on the outskirts of Lviv today. 
The nation's top infectious disease expert is warning the U.S. could see another increase in coronavirus infections because of an even more contagious version of the virus. NPR's Rob Stein has more. Dr. Anthony Fauci says the more contagious strain of Omicron is already fueling surges in Europe, including the U.K., which often foreshadows what happens in the U.S. So I would not be surprised if in the next few weeks we do see either a plateauing or even a rebound and slightly go up. That is entirely conceivable. Fauci cautions, however, that a new surge is not inevitable, but people should remain vigilant and be prepared to start wearing their masks again if a new surge does erupt. Rob Stein, NPR News. With a backlog of unloaded container ships at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach easing, the White House nonetheless has announced a new program called FLOW. stands for Freight Logistics Optimization Works. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says it's a reminder the U.S. cannot always rely on foreign partners to deal with global trade issues. We're always going to trade with uh, with different partners around the world, but uh, I think uh, it, it's clearer and clearer that we become too dependent on some of the ups and downs of what can be happening half a world away. Buttigieg making his remarks on NPR's Here and Now today. The Transportation Secretary says data sharing can help in terms of easier movement of goods. Stocks gained ground at week's end. The Dow up 274 points today. The Nasdaq rose 279 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The Federal Reserve made it a little more expensive to borrow money this week and will likely keep doing so this year. How's that going to affect the hot housing market here in Massachusetts? Experts say not by much. Here's WBUR's Yasmin Emmer. Don Ruffini is the president of the Massachusetts Association of Realtors. She says, if anything, she's expecting an even more competitive housing market as the weather gets warmer. As buyers hear the news that interest rates are rising, anybody that was on the fence will usually try to get into the market now before the rates get too high. Ruffini says it's usually an either-or situation between lower interest rates and lower home prices. In a state with low housing inventory, you're highly unlikely to get both. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Amr. A state-funded emergency program for COVID-related sick leave has expired. The temporary measure allowed employers to be reimbursed by the state for workers' time off due to COVID-19. Labor advocates are calling on lawmakers to allocate more funding to continue the benefit. Less than a year after it was signed into law, the New Hampshire House has voted to repeal the state's paid family leave program. Backers of the repeal say it is no longer needed because private insurance companies have similar plans. Opponents of the repeal say those private insurance plans make paid family leave exclusionary because the plans are too expensive for low-income residents. The proposal now heads to the New Hampshire Senate. Burlington-based Everbridge is teaming with Amazon Web Services to provide communications platforms for humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. The platforms will be free and give volunteer organizations, charities, and other organizations a reliable means to communicate through voice messaging, email, and other digital means. The platforms are alternative to the Internet and phone services, which have been unreliable since the start of the Russian invasion. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 47 degrees. Showers with some thunderstorms possible tomorrow. The highs will be around 57 degrees. Partly sunny and breezy on Sunday. The highs will be around 61. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. At Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE, comparison rates not available in all states or situations. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Russia's attack on Ukraine is expanding. Until recently, the city of Lviv, that's western Ukraine, had been relatively safe. Then, last night, Russian missiles rained down on an aviation repair building at the Lviv airport. That building, which houses Ukrainian MiG fighter jets, is just 45 miles from Ukraine's border with Poland. Meanwhile, separated by thousands of miles, President Biden and China's President Xi Jinping met over a secure video call to discuss the growing conflict. Both of these are developments that Wendy Sherman has been watching very closely from her post as Deputy Secretary of State. We've caught her today at the State Department. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Great to be with you. Let's start with these talks with President Xi. Uh, He and President Biden met this morning uh, for almost two hours. President Xi, according to China's readout, is reported to have said China doesn't want to see the situation in Ukraine come to this, that China stands for peace. So I'll start by asking, did President Xi make any concrete commitments in that direction, in the direction of using his leverage to stop this war? Um, Look, I'm not going to speak for President Xi. We'll let the comments from uh, the People's Republic of China stand for themselves. However, they want to those comments didn't show any concrete commitments in that direction, which is why I'm asking you. Well, what I can say is that President Biden made very clear uh, to President Xi Jinping uh, that this was Putin's war of choice. And President Biden made clear to President Xi Jinping that if China provides material support to Russia as it conducts these brutal attacks against Ukrainian cities and civilians, then uh, there will be implications and consequences. Has China already provided support to Russia, either military or economic? Do we know? Uh, I'm not going to speak to any intelligence or anything of that nature. Uh, I think we have reason to be concerned, and we certainly want to head off uh, any choice that China would make uh, to do so, uh, because this really is a case of an aggressor, Vladimir Putin, and a victim. So what consequences are on the table from the U.S. side if China does support Russia, either economically or militarily? I think one only has to look at what we have done in concert with our allies and partners, not only in Europe but around the world, uh, which is to impose very severe costs. It depends on what happens here, of course, and we would take each circumstance and look at it very carefully about what the appropriate response would be. Uh, But one can't uh, support uh, such an aggressor uh, without, in fact, bearing some of the cost. How do you make the case? How does the U.S. make the case to China? You should stand with the U.S. when China's long-term strategic goals appear to be much more closely aligned with Russia's. Well, look, we understand that China, uh, the People's Republic of China, has interests with Russia, that it has a strategic partnership, that has business interests and oil interests, lots of other things of that nature. But, you know, that doesn't mean you always agree uh, with what uh, your partners are doing. Uh, And uh, there is no formal alliance between the two countries. But even that aside, 
uh, we would say to the PRC, as a Security Council member, as a country that has long stood for these principles, that they should continue to stand with these principles and tell Vladimir Putin to end this uh, unprovoked war. Uh, Ukraine was never a threat to Russia. There was no reason for Russia to invade. Uh, and uh, the PRC can do something here to use its influence and, at the very least, uh, to make sure that it doesn't provide any material support uh, to this aggressor nation. In the minute we have left, let me flip you to Iran. Uh, which Russia threw a wrench in there as well, a wrench into the talks on getting Iran back into the nuclear deal. Um, do you see, Wendy Sherman, those talks getting going again next week? And uh, bigger picture, can Iran still be stopped from getting a nuclear weapon? President Biden is absolutely committed, as is Secretary Blinken, as am I, to ensuring that Iran never gets a nuclear weapon. Uh, it would be uh, quite, quite a problem if they did, as much as they have maligned behavior in the Middle East today, uh, they would be able to project power into that region and deter many actions that we must take to protect our partners uh, in the region. Um, so this is very crucial. Uh, there are ongoing discussions. Uh, Russia did, in fact, uh, appear to throw a wrench in, in it. Iran has engaged Russia, to my information, and uh, it appears that, in fact, uh, uh, Russia was talking about a very narrow slice of what was necessary for the deal, mm. not the broader sanctions uh, that we've imposed because of the unprovoked war in Ukraine. Uh, that would be absolutely impossible, of course. There are still a couple of issues uh, yet to be resolved, and nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Uh, we all hope, of course, that Iran comes back into full compliance uh, so that they never can obtain a nuclear weapon. And getting we talks going. We can continue our consultations and our work together with our partners and allies in the broader region uh, to ensure not only that Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon, uh, but that we push back on their malign behavior in the region, which is well, very concerning. Last question, and it's a yes or no question. Will the United States take the IRGC, the Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Will the U.S. take them off the foreign terrorist list? I'm not going to get into the details of uh, the negotiation or what is being discussed. But it is uh, it's being very discussed. very important when one does negotiations that uh, you keep things um, uh, as difficult as it may be uh, because there's so many pieces of the puzzle on the table. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to get into the details. What I am going to say is that at the end of this negotiation, if Iran will come back into full compliance, at which point we will as well, uh, that we will make sure uh, that we can continue uh, to address uh, the state sponsorship of terrorism uh, by uh, the Republic of Iran. We will leave it there for today. That's Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman on the line from the State Department. Thank you very much for your time and for speaking with us. Thank you. The Federal Reserve is starting to raise interest rates, and that means it is getting more expensive to borrow money in all kinds of ways. Mortgages, car loans, credit cards. NPR's Chris Arnold reports on where we're likely to feel this the most. When you're buying something as pricey as a house, interest rates matter a lot, and they've already jumped up pretty sharply. It starts to push it from like 
we could maybe make it work to the point where you're just like, it's not worth it. Zach Jubron lives in Fort Collins, Colorado. He's 33 years old and he and his partner are ready to buy a place and settle down. But in this frenzied housing market, that's already been really tough. And now mortgage rates have risen more than a full percentage point since just this last summer. On a $450,000 loan, that pushes the mortgage payment up by $325 a month. I have tens of thousands of dollars in savings, and it feels like it's nothing. It doesn't matter. And now that the Fed's raising the interest rates, that just closes that door even more. All this sounds pretty bad, but there are some upsides to rising interest rates. The return on super safe investments like bank CDs, those should be going up a bit. And actually, with the housing market, higher rates could finally stop the runaway train of rising home prices. Selma Hepp is an economist at CoreLogic. Higher mortgage rates may be helpful in cooling the housing market, you know, and that may help us bring us back more to some level of normality. And in that case, we won't see so much bidding over the asking price. Don't expect home prices to come down. Hep says home prices in the U.S. rose by nearly 20% last year. But this year, they're expected to rise by much less, more like 3%. A few years like that could give builders time to catch up with demand and build more homes. Another good thing, too, for people who already own a home. Currently, about 90% of loans are fixed-rate loans. So they're protected against rising interest rates. Together, though, U.S. homeowners owe around $300 billion on home equity lines of credit, with those you borrow against the value of your house. Almost all of those have variable rates. And the Federal Reserve is planning to keep raising interest rates to combat inflation all year. Kate Wood follows home loans for NerdWallet. A home equity line of credit these are really, really, really closely tied to the kinds of moves that the Federal Reserve is making. Your rate is going to go up. But Wood says the Fed has only just started to nudge rates higher, so you still actually have some time to look at your options. Some banks will let you take the money that you owe on a line of credit and lock that into a fixed interest rate. It's worth reaching out proactively to your lender about that because, you know, think about it. This is something that is potentially saving you money. Your lender is maybe not sending you mailers and calling you up to let you know about this great option. So it's a good idea to actually get them on the phone. Rates are also likely to go up for all kinds of other types of consumer debt, a new loan to buy a car, credit cards, installment loans. So if you have, say, credit card debt, now is a good time to try to get out from under it. If you feel trapped, credit counseling can really make a difference. Miguel Gomez is a certified financial planner in El Paso, Texas. He says the National Foundation for Credit Counseling is a good nonprofit that he's seen help clients to get out of debt. And he says there's this age-old technique. Take your credit cards, put them in a Ziploc bag, put them in a Tupperware, full the Tupperware of water, put it in the freezer, and forget about them. That way, if you really need a credit card, you still have them, but it definitely cuts down on the impulse purchases. Chris Arnold, NPR News.
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 72 degrees in Boston at 518. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, many who are vaccinated against COVID-19 are worried an infection may lead to long COVID. The latest research shows that can happen, but the chance is much lower among those who are vaccinated. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. In business news, Amazon is ramping up efforts to speed the time of delivery in the Boston area. This week, it opened a new fulfillment center in Bridgewater. It's far smaller than other Amazon warehouses in the area, and it's the first in Massachusetts focused on same-day order fulfillment. The smaller size is designed to enable faster deliveries, sometimes in as little as three to five hours. On Wall Street, stocks closed the week higher. The Dow was up 273 points, or three-quarters of a percent, at 34,754. NASDAQ up 279 points, or 2%, at 13,894. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30 here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Vivaldi's Gloria and J.S. and C.P.E. Bach, April 1st and 3rd at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. And Comcast, working to build and evolve a reliable network to keep customers connected. Learn more at comcast.com network. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 47 degrees. Showers with some thunderstorms possible tomorrow. The high around 57 Partly sunny and breezy on Sunday, the high 61. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For many vaccinated Americans, long COVID remains one of the biggest concerns about catching the virus. The fear that even a mild cold could later develop into a lasting, debilitating medical condition. Researchers are now getting a clearer sense of just how likely that is to happen if you're already vaccinated. And so far, the results look promising. NPR's Will Stone reports. The vaccines were created to keep you out of the hospital, not to stop long COVID. But Dr. Stephen Deeks at the University of California, San Francisco, says there's been good reason to expect that vaccines would help. Most consequences of an infectious disease is related to the burden of that infection, right? And for and for COVID, it's the amount of virus they've infected with. And it's clear that if you're vaccinated and then infected, there's going to be less virus in your body than someone who's unvaccinated. So it would make great sense that the amount of virus-related complications over time would also be lower. Sounds simple. Of course, scientists still need to figure out how the virus triggers long COVID in the first place. 
There are lots of theories, like maybe the infection causes permanent tissue damage or that it injures the blood vessels. Or it could be the virus never leaves the body or provokes an autoimmune response. It's possible all of this could be at play. So for now, the best evidence on how vaccines do against long COVID comes from a growing number of real-world studies. Here's Deeks again. In general, if you look across all the various different papers in this area, uh, the consensus is, is that if you are vaccinated and become infected, your risk of developing long COVID is reduced. Just how much is hard to say. Deeks puts it roughly around 50%. But the problem is it can be hard to compare studies, in part because they have different definitions of long COVID, which symptoms count, how many, and how long they need to last. Michael Edelstein is an epidemiologist at Bar Ilan University in Israel. His study followed several thousand people. For those who were infected, approximately four to ten months after their infection, we checked whether they were still experiencing symptoms. They found a big difference. The fully vaccinated were 50 to 80 percent less likely to report most of the common symptoms, like fatigue, headache, shortness of breath, compared to the unvaccinated. I think the evidence from this study, similar to other studies that are roughly coming out at the same time, I think shows a pretty profound protective effect. Another study took a different approach, analyzing thousands of electronic health records from the VA. Dr. Ziad Al-Ali of the St. Louis VA says they measured a range of medical problems at six months after infection. Their risk of long COVID is slightly lower than people who had COVID-19 without vaccination, but it doesn't really go away totally. He says being vaccinated seemed to make the biggest difference in two specific ways. People are having less shortness of breath and less cough, less lingering manifestations in the, in the lungs. And then two, less blood clotting. And he says the lower risk of long COVID was true even for vaccinated people who were so sick they ended up in the hospital. But David Petrino at Mount Sinai in New York City cautions vaccination is not going to completely protect you. He cares for plenty of long COVID patients who got sick when they were vaccinated. I don't think in good faith I would be able to distinguish between someone who has a breakthrough case of long COVID versus a pre-vaccine case of long COVID. The, the symptoms are very consistent. And now the big question is, what will the aftermath of Omicron look like? Scientists don't yet have good data on that variant and long COVID, but Petrino plans to play it safe. He says the best way to avoid long COVID is not to get infected in the first place. Will Stone, NPR News. The men's and women's Division I college basketball tournaments are underway. And for the first time in three years, the buzz is actually about March Madness. The upsets, the close calls, the thrills rather than COVID-19 bubbles and restrictions. NPR's Tom Goldman took in the scene yesterday in Portland, Oregon, where first-round games were a cause for celebration, albeit tempered for some. In 2020, March Madness was canceled. Last year, it returned, but with limited spectators, no school bands or cheerleaders. The men played all their games in Indiana, the women in Texas. Yesterday... It all came back in arenas from Buffalo to here in Portland. There was this. And this. 
It all made Donna Payne happy. She traveled from Butte, Montana to see her beloved Gonzaga Bulldogs, the tournament's top-seeded team. Payne was thrilled to be part of this return to almost normal. She and three close friends wore face masks. Most fans at Portland's Moda Center didn't. Oregon's mandate ended last weekend. And I'm sitting next to a stranger. I don't care. I think it's awesome because I get to talk to people. University of Memphis tuba player Kobe Wilson reveled in bringing back the live soundtrack to March Madness. We're going to do our, our best and keep the fans energized, even how small we are, and we're going to keep the basketball team going. Laser-focused basketball players did hear the music and the crowd, especially March Madness first-timers. Memphis freshman center Jalen Duran helped his team win its opening game. Just the bright lights and just the packed house is just amazing atmosphere. I mean, that's what we play basketball for. You watch this growing up, watch Mars manage, then you just want to be in this, this position. Because actually, it helps, says Drew Timmy, a March Madness veteran. The star forward for Gonzaga played through all of last season's restricted tournament. His team ultimately lost in the championship game to Baylor. The atmosphere, Timmy said, didn't work. Fake crowd noise through a speaker does not sound too good. So uh, getting real interactions, real emotions, it really helps, you know, just kind of pump you up and really get into the game easier. Gonzaga needed a pumped-up Timmy yesterday. Playing against the 16th-seeded Georgia State Panthers, the Zags actually trailed with 13 minutes left in the game. Remember, 16th seeds have beaten one seeds exactly once in NCAA history. Final score this afternoon. Gonzaga Bulldogs, 93, Georgia State Panthers, 72. A 21-point win sounds easy enough, but Gonzaga head coach Mark Few knew his team had been in a first-round tussle. Uh, you know, I always say probably the hardest thing to do in our sport is get NCAA uh, tournament wins. It's hard enough to just to get to the NCAA tournament, and then once you get here, you know you're going to play a really good team. Across the country in Indianapolis, number two seed University of Kentucky found out the hard way, falling to the suddenly mighty 15th seeded St. Peter's Peacocks. It was the biggest upset of day one, a day when all seemed right again, at least in the world of college basketball. Oh, I'm a news junkie, so I, you know, sit and listen and watch a lot of it. Janie Payne, another Montanan, admitted her celebration of hoops in Portland was tempered by what's happening outside America's basketball arenas. Being at the tournament, she said, was a respite from COVID and now the war in Ukraine. So to be able to be here and just like have fun and be here with friends and family, I feel grateful that, you know, I live where I live and I am able to be here because we can all see how quickly things can turn and all of a sudden you don't have anything. March Madness, seemingly whole again, continues with the first and second rounds through the weekend. Tom Goldman, NPR News, Portland. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 71 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is the first black woman nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. As her confirmation hearings approach, black women are mobilizing to defend her record. That's just ahead here on WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood's popular artist series, presenting Bonnie Raitt with special guest Lucinda Williams, June 18th. More at tanglewood.org. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Peabody Essex Museum, presenting artists' responses to the global climate crisis with Down to the Bone. On view now, plan your visit at PEM.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden told Chinese President Xi Jinping today that China would face consequences not just from the U.S., but from the wider world if Beijing offers material support to Russia in its war against Ukraine. The White House calls the nearly two-hour phone call between the two leaders direct, substantive, and detailed. Meanwhile, the top U.S. commander for the Middle East, Marine General Frank McKenzie, says it doesn't appear Moscow is moving troops from Syria to join the Ukraine fight. We have not seen any significant drawdown of forces in Syria in order to go back, back to Russia. McKenzie, who is retiring after about three years as head of the U.S. Central Command, spoke to reporters via video conference at what was expected to be his final press briefing. Russia's assault in Ukraine is destroying the infrastructure that's needed to distribute food. NPR's Amy Held reports officials warn the attacks are trapping millions of people as the system that feeds them is falling apart. Russia has taken out trains, bridges and airports, leaving warehouses and supermarkets bare in Ukraine. The World Food Program warns the situation is most dire in encircled cities, including Mariupol, where residents without power, running water or food await help. A supply convoy has been held up outside the city for days, unable to enter. And the food crisis is reverberating far beyond Ukraine. Together, Russia and Ukraine export some 30% of the world's wheat and 20% of its corn. Now, millions of tons of grain are stuck. And the WFP says the world's most vulnerable, especially those in Afghanistan, Ethiopia and Syria, will be hardest hit. Amy Held, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 274 points. The Nasdaq up 279 points. That's just over 2%. And the S&P 500 up 51. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A weeks-long drop in new COVID cases in Massachusetts may be ending. The Department of Public Health reported 813 new cases today. It was the second day in a row that new cases increased compared to the same day last week. The percentage of tests coming back positive is nearly 1.7%. That's up one-tenth of a percentage point from yesterday. The number of people hospitalized has remained roughly steady for five straight days at 231. Boston restaurants and pubs are reporting business was brisk on St. Patrick's Day. Yesterday was also the first day of March Madness. Massachusetts Restaurant Association's Bob Luz says it was a perfect recipe for the great turnout. Certainly, it's going to be one of the best days that um, Irish restaurants and, and bars and certainly, you know, all restaurants across Boston have seen in the last two uh, St. Patrick's Days. 
Luz believes compared to other states, Massachusetts is still slow to come back to pre-pandemic levels with a lot of people still working from home. Massachusetts workers no longer have access to state-funded emergency paid, paid time off. The program established in the coronavirus pandemic ended this week. WBUR's Lainey Ruckstall has more. Massachusetts COVID-19 emergency paid sick time program reimbursed employers for workers paid time off if they contracted COVID or needed to care for someone else who had. The state says it ended the program because it ran out of funding. Advocates like Jody Sugarman Brozan with the Massachusetts Coalition for Occupational Safety and Health are calling on Governor Baker to extend it. What this means is many workers will choose to go to work sick instead because they have no choice but to put food on the table. There is currently no pending legislation aimed at extending the program, but employers still have until April 29th to file for reimbursements. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. The state will begin a review of the Boston Public Schools later this month. Elementary and Secondary Education Commissioner Jeff Riley says it's a follow-up to a 2019 review that found a significant number of low-performing schools and inadequate services for students with disabilities. State education officials say Boston schools have made some improvements, but there is still work to be done. In sports, the spring training in Fort Myers, the Red Sox came from behind to beat the Tampa Bay Rays this afternoon. 7-6 to six was the final score in that game. Celtics take on the Kings in Sacramento tonight. The Bruins are in Winnipeg to take on the Jets. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 47 degrees. Showers with some thunderstorms possible tomorrow. The highs will be around 57 degrees. Partly sunny and breezy on Sunday. The high will be 61. Sunny and windy on Monday. The high around 55 degrees. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed a hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all of their job openings. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from Clavio, working to help brands deliver personalized email and SMS campaigns that drive revenue and create genuine customer relationships at K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The Senate Judiciary Committee will begin its confirmation hearing on Monday for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. If confirmed, Jackson would make history by becoming the first black woman to serve as a justice. In Washington and around the country, black women are preparing to be Jackson's first line of defense against anticipated Republican attacks and to help her share her story with the nation. That's why we went to the steps of the Supreme Court last week, as hundreds of people, mostly black women, were gathering. Who do you want confirmed? A group of seven black women posed for a photo on the steps in front of the Supreme Court building. They're all wearing these matching shirts with Jackson's photo in the center. I asked one of the women to tell me about them. The shirt is, Biden has nominated a woman who is supremely qualified for this position. This is Petey Talley from Toledo, Ohio. She said she wanted to support Jackson because she expects that Republicans may try to discredit her during the confirmation process, despite the fact that she has been approved by the Senate three times before. 
Well, we just, again, want it to be fair. She's qualified, she's supremely qualified, and we just don't want to hear any foolishness about anything, because it's not there. Some of the women were wearing bold colors, pink and green, royal blue, crimson, representing some of the historically black sororities that are part of the Divine Nine. Dressed in the brilliant red of Delta Sigma Theta, Betty Ann Hart said she wasn't sure she'd ever see a black woman nominated to the court. I'm 73 years old, I'm a child of the 60s, and this is just a dream come true. Hart is a former state legislator from Atlanta and has been practicing law for more than four decades. I asked her what she'd be doing during the confirmation hearings. I think that um, she's in for a very contentious and rude process, and um, I will just be there in spirit and watching and covering her for, with prayer. What makes you expect that the process will be rude and contentious and challenging for her? History. And let's face it, what everything that she stands for, everything she represents. She motions behind her toward the court. Everything that she stands for, everything she represents is something that was never designed to be in the justice halls. And so I, she doesn't expect an easy ride and none of us expect an easy ride for her. That idea that this process could look different for Jackson is why black women say they began to strategize even before President Biden announced that he would nominate her. Biden promised as a candidate that he would nominate the first black woman to the court. And he reaffirmed that when Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement. Shortly after, the Congressional Black Caucus set up what it's calling a war room to mobilize around the president's nominee, whoever she would be. This is Congressional Black Caucus Chair Joyce Beatty. We wanted to make sure that we were positioned, we had a voice, and that we wanted the hearings to start immediately and that we were going to be dealing with anything that was not above board in the hearings and in her confirmation. As the hearings kick off, Beatty says that members of the caucus, particularly the nearly 30 Black women members, will be visible. We will be present um, in the first day and second and third and fourth days uh, of her confirmation hearing. Uh, we will be on every national platform, whether invited or not. Uh, we will impose ourselves there because the nation will be watching. The effort by Black women to mobilize around Jackson underscores the history that Jackson will make if confirmed, as well as its importance to Black women, who have long been the Democratic Party's most reliable voters. We've spent a lot of time talking about how Black women voters are a powerful voting block, but we also organize our house, our block, our church, our sorority, and our unions. That's Glenda Carr. She runs Higher Heights for America, a group that supports Black women in politics. She says now the same women who have boosted Democrats at the polls for years are organizing behind Jackson. You know, I was on a call the other day and there are black women who were like, I'm coming to DC. Um, I might not be able to be in that hearing room, but it is something about, you know, just being in this moment. Biden's promise to name the first black woman to the court brought with it critiques from some Republicans that the choice should be solely based on merit without considering race or gender. 
This is Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas on a recent episode of his podcast. If he came and said, I'm going to put the best jurist on the court, and, and he looked at a number of people and he ended up nominating a black woman, he, he could credibly say, okay, I'm nominating the person who's most qualified. He's not right. even pretending to say that. He, he's saying, if you're a white guy, tough luck. A comment that has resonated among black women came not from a member of the Senate, but from Fox News host Tucker Carlson. So it might be time for Joe Biden to let us know what Kentaji Brown Jackson's LSAT score was. What the hell did she do in the LSAT? Why wouldn't he tell us that? That's the type of, of misogyny and, and otherism that Republicans often, often apply to uh, women of color, and particularly black women. Now, this is Tara Setmayer. She is a conservative, but broke with the Republican Party several years ago. She says Republicans should zero in on Jackson's judicial record. They should focus on uh, her rulings and her interpretation of the Constitution. That, that's what matters. Unfortunately, I don't think they're going to go that way. Some Black women say they hope to see the White House and the president himself play a prominent role in supporting the first Black woman named to fill a Supreme Court vacancy. Juanita Tolliver, a Democratic strategist, said she was surprised Biden didn't talk more about Jackson in his State of the Union address. I, I did a double take. I said, oh, is that it? I, I felt like it warranted a lot more space, not only for the historic nature of it, but also the political implications, right? Tolliver said she hopes that next week, the White House makes a point of forcefully elevating Jackson's profile. This is the first Black woman being uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court, someone who the president selected. And he absolutely should take every opportunity to not only defend her from racist and misogynistic attacks during the confirmation hearings, but to celebrate her once this confirmation is complete. Back outside of the Supreme Court last week, Gwendolyn Thompson of Maryland said she wanted to send a signal to the Senate that black women care about what happens in the confirmation process. I remember when we didn't have a man on the moon. <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying. So it's a step. We're not living on the moon, but we got a step. Yeah, you understand what I'm saying? So that's what it means to me. For Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, the next step is a four-day confirmation hearing that begins on Monday. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The sanctions imposed on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine have targeted its economy and its oligarchs. Extremely wealthy individuals with ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. But not all oligarchs are created equal. Patty Hirsch and Adrian Ma from NPR's Daily Economics podcast, The Indicator, explain who these people are and what that means for the effectiveness of sanctions. It's hard to say how many oligarchs there are in Russia. Some of them live large, right? They travel widely and they're often seen in the media. Others are a lot more discreet. Stanislav Marcus is an associate professor of international business at the University of South Carolina and a specialist on Russian oligarchs. Marcus says these oligarchs fall into three loose categories. First, there are the original, the OG oligarchs. They became wealthy when the Soviet Union fell apart in the 1990s. The Soviet Union was, of course, 
a state-dominated planned economy. And then after uh, the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia tried to build a market economy, they had to privatize all those state assets. They had to give them to private owners. They didn't quite give them these assets. The oligarchs had to buy them. But they bought them very cheap, and they became super rich. After coming to power in 2000, Vladimir Putin set about creating a new generation of oligarchs some of whom were pretty close friends of his from St. Petersburg. He basically gave super lucrative state contracts to his buddies, so to say, and they grew ultra wealthy in exchange for kickbacks. Part of the deal with Putin is that they can get as rich as they want, but they've got to stay out of politics. And so most of them aren't in Putin's inner circle. They don't have his ear. But because they've been so rich for so long, many of these two categories of oligarchs are highly visible, and so they're the ones that have been sanctioned. Marcus says that probably won't achieve a whole lot. He is, however, incentivized to listen to the military elites. The military elites, which include the most recent generation of oligarchs, the so-called Silovarks. Siloviki is the reference to the Russian military and quasi-military elites. So we call them Siloviki, then oligarchs. You combine these two words, you get Silovarks. These are the men Putin will increasingly rely on in the coming weeks to keep the Russian people in line. And assuming the war in Ukraine grinds on and sanctions continue to pummel the Russian economy, Marcus says these Silovarks should be a priority target. If Putin loses coercion, you know, he loses power. So we could see from this, you know, specifically from the group of Silovarks, we could see pressure, we could even see internal uh, attempts at a coup. But Marcus says identifying and targeting these men is not easy. Ownership is highly concealed. It's layered in different offshores, and that will require much more investigative work. To really be effective, these sanctions have to be a lot more targeted and a lot more specific than this wide net that the U.S. and its allies have cast. They need to provide Silvarks with real incentives to either turn on their boss or convince him to back down. If the U.S. and its allies can keep the pressure on the economy, sanctions on individuals could be a powerful tool, as long as they're directed at those oligarchs with a triple threat. Money to lose, power to wield, and access to Putin's ear. Adrian Ma, Patty Hirsch, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. It's 549. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, pizza makers in New York are remembering Dom DeMarco, the founder of the beloved Brooklyn pizzeria DeFara, who's died at the age of 85. That's ahead here on WBUR. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hamblin Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 
In sports, the Northeastern University women's hockey team is one win away from going to the national title game for women's college hockey. This afternoon, the Huskies are playing in the Frozen Four semifinal game against Minnesota Duluth. Right now, they're going into overtime with the score tied 1-1. to Spring training in Fort Myers, Red Sox beat the Rays 7-6, to the final score in that game. I got on a plane and went to Kinshasa, the capital of Congo, to figure out who controls cobalt right now. Because whoever controls cobalt is going to have a key role in this new industrial revolution that's happening across the world. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Dom DeMarco, founder of the beloved Brooklyn Pizzeria De Ferra, has died at the age of 85. Emily Lang of member station WNYC talked to local pizza makers about his legacy. Dom DeMarco immigrated from Caserta, a small province in Italy known for its lush palace gardens. In Brooklyn, DeMarco created his own royal garden of basil in the windowsill of the pizza shop he opened in 1965. He snipped sprigs of basil on top of almost every pizza with a swig of fragrant olive oil from a can that looked like something you would water flowers with. The way the sun would come through the window and it was just him back there and, you know, whether it was like a basil plant in the window or that's Mark Iacono, a pizzaiolo and founder of Lucali, an acclaimed pizza joint in Carroll Gardens. Iacono represents the feelings of a lot of pizza aficionados. Robert Tsitsima is a senior food critic at Eater New York. He says DeMarco changed the landscape for an industry of mainly immigrant-run neighborhood slice joints. That sort of pizza parlor arose in the 1950s, often started by people that were either refugees from the Second World War or had been servicemen. All over Brooklyn in particular, pizzerias were established on pretty much every block, and nobody even paid attention to them. Sitsima says up until a few years ago, DeMarco made every pie, taking each one out at least three times to turn them and gradually top them with buffalo mozzarella. He began to popularize it, and pretty soon people from all over the city were coming to taste his pizzas. Nick Baglivo is a manager of Lit Industria Pizzeria in Williamsburg. He says he had a near religious experience at Defaro when he was a teenager. I remember as a kid, you know, my cousin took me there when I was like 12, 13 years old. We waited online. I got to see him and I got to eat his pizza, his sauce, fresh basil, olive oil, and like Parmesan on the pizza. But DeMarco's contribution goes far beyond that crispy bite of charred thin crust, even for pizza makers who've never tasted it themselves. Nicole Russell runs Last Dragon Pizza. Give that man his flowers like a bouquet of basil, like a bouquet of flowers. And don't forget the fragrant olive oil. For NPR, I'm Emily Lang in New York. It's not every day that a 97-year-old releases a new album. This is Ruth Slinchenska. On her album, My Life in Music, she revisits favorite pieces she's played for more than nine decades. NPR's Tom Heisinga sat down with the pianist for a video chat, a piano lesson, and a trip down memory lane. 
Ruth Slonchinska likes to hand out sage advice. You don't become a pianist until you're past the age of 60. And then you should have something to say that's worthwhile. If you don't, forget it. Never mind that Slonchinska made her debut as a pianist at age four. As we settle into our chat, I discover a sharp, smart woman with a hearty chuckle. I love meeting you. <laughs> but Slonchinska's life story hasn't always been so cheerful. From the start, she was a child prodigy from Sacramento, called the greatest piano genius since Mozart, who, at age five, left for Europe to study with a who's who of 20th century piano legends, including Arthur Schnabel, Alfred Cortot, and Sergei Rachmaninoff, whom she met for the first time in 1934. I was a frightened little girl at the door of his apartment at the Villa Majestique in Paris. And he pointed this long index finger down at me. And he said, you mean that plays the piano? Slonchinska is regarded as Rachmaninoff's last living student. That first meeting with him stretched into two years of mentorship. She begins her new album with the composer's Daisies. Well, I've played it for almost all of my life. Rachmaninoff told the young Slinchinska that her fingers were like overcooked spaghetti. She needed more power, but that's not all she picked up from the great composer and pianist. The most important thing that I learned was how to make the music carry a long musical line. And how to carefully measure out those lines when it comes to climaxes, like in Chopin's dramatic ballade number one. Slinchenska offers to demonstrate at the piano. This large climax is not the greatest climax in this piece because there comes a final one where Chopin writes Il più forte possibile, which means as loud as possible. Slonchenska learned from the great pianists, but her most consequential teacher was her father. He was a failed musician, hell-bent on making a star out of his daughter, even if it cost her her childhood. I wasn't allowed to think of myself. My only thought was to please my father and escape the magic stick. That magic stick was what Slonchenska's father used to beat her. I dreamed of running away from home. That was what I did eventually, but I was 19 when I did it. <laughs> After Slinchenska's father died in 1951, her career flourished without him. But she took the time to chronicle his horrific abuse in her autobiography titled Forbidden Childhood. Well, I didn't have a childhood. No way. But I'm making up for it now. <laughs> That's the spirit. 
I'm having a good time wherever I go. And Slinchinska, always the optimist, has been on the go. Last month, she played a full concert in Pennsylvania. She also just signed a new record deal and released My Life in Music, her first album for the Decca label in nearly 60 years. It contains music by Grieg, Debussy, her friend Samuel Barber, her beloved Rachmaninoff, and she closes with uplifting music by Bach. After our long and wide-ranging conversation, I couldn't help asking Ruth Lenchinska the obvious question. What's your secret? What keeps you going? You're healthy and smart and funny. Take whatever is given your way. Find what's best in it. Enjoy. Try to make somebody else's day. They'll give it back to you tenfold. And from a 97-year-old with a career in full swing, that's advice worth following. Tom Heisinger, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. From Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to develop new lung cancer therapies based on the discovery of the EGFR mutation, Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash stories. From Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at Avast.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 70 degrees in Boston. At a minute before 6 o'clock, ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from people about the experience of being a refugee, how fleeing their home country has affected their life, and what life is like now. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Increasing clouds tonight, the lows will be around 47 degrees. Showers with some thunderstorms possible tomorrow. The high will be about 57 degrees. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Franny Carr-Toth, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is not an easy experience, and this is not fun, but it will definitely shape who you're going to be in the future. As millions of Ukrainians pour over the border into other countries, a Syrian refugee who fled her home reflects on the children's future. It's Friday, March 18th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead, refugees reflect on their past experiences. Also, air quality advocates hope that funds set aside under a Biden administration plan will help improve ventilation in schools. Creating healthy learning environments is really connected to health and academic performance. But many schools face major challenges in making those upgrades and marking the 100th anniversary of the first bat mitzvah in the United States. Marketplace comes up at 6.30. It's 6.01. Now this news. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden spoke today with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden warned Xi against helping Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. President Biden and Xi spoke for nearly two hours. A senior administration official described the call as direct, substantive, and detailed. They spent most of their time on the video call speaking about the Russian invasion and the potential impacts it could have on U.S.-China relations. The officials said Biden made clear that there would be consequences if China provided Russia with material support, but they did not outline what those consequences would be. Asked whether Biden asked Xi to intercede with Putin, the officials said the president wasn't really making specific requests of China, but to give his assessment and that he would let China make its own decisions. Franco Ordonez. NPR News. Much higher than previously reported numbers of people are now being displaced by the ongoing Russian attack against Ukraine. The UN Migration Agency says it estimates nearly six and a half million people have been displaced by the fighting there. That's on top of the 3.2 million refugees who fled the country. The estimates from the International Organization for Migration suggesting Ukraine is fast on course in just three weeks towards the level of displacement from Syria's devastating war, which has driven some 13 million people from their homes. The Russian military expanded its list of targets today, striking the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. The city has seen a surge of refugees and humanitarian assistance due to its relative safety. Ukrainian officials are also eyeing the south of the country, concerned about whether Russia might seek to open a new front. NPR's Tim Mack has more from the city of Odessa. The once bustling streets of Odessa, a port city on the southern coast of Ukraine, are empty. Rather than the customary crowds of springtime, the streets are filled with anti-tank obstacles and lined with barbed wire. Sandbags, checkpoints, and soldiers with guns are almost omnipresent in the city center, renowned for its 19th century architecture and world-famous opera house. Russian warships have been spotted off the coast in the Black Sea. The Ukrainian military has heavily fortified the areas near the beach as a preparation for a possible amphibious assault. As of now, the city is quiet, with an ominous tension in the air. Tim Mack, NPR News, Odessa. Sales of previously owned homes took their biggest tumble in a year as mortgage rates began pushing higher, causing some would-be buyers to hit the pause button. The National Association of Realtors, the industry's main trade group, says sales of existing homes fell 7.2% in February to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 6.02 million units. Stocks shook off an earlier decline to end the trading week on an up note. The Dow gained 274 points today. The Nasdaq rose 279 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The fate of the state's five investor-owned gas companies could be in the balance. Their long-awaited future of gas study has been released. Massachusetts regulators require the utilities to create roadmaps detailing how they intend to meet the state's 2050 net-zero climate goals. As WBUR's Bruce Gellerman reports, the plans to transform the state's energy system is already fueling intense opposition. The gas company's plans are similar. All call for greater energy efficiency, the use of hybrid heating with electric heat pumps backed up with gas furnaces, and most controversial, replacing fossil fuel natural gas with biogas from decaying organic waste. But State Senator Cynthia Cream says natural and biogas are the same climate-disrupting chemical. We're not going to reach zero emissions by fiddling around with the gas system. No, we really need to reimagine the approach to heating buildings in Massachusetts. 
Instead, Cream has introduced legislation to permit gas companies to use pipes drilled deep into the ground to carry thermal energy to heat and cool buildings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Bruce Kellerman. Violent crimes can rise with the temperature. As we head into the warmer months, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office has kicked off a new program to help prosecutors address gun violence. WBUR's Josie Garino has more. DA Kevin Hayden has assigned two special prosecutors to fast-track cases of serious gun offenses through court. There's been a backlog in the pandemic. He says one case he wants to expedite is this week's arrest of a man at South Station with a bunch of ammunition and 11 guns. Hayden believes those guns would have ended up in the wrong hands and could have increased Boston's crime rate. Gun crimes can really tip the scales. Uh, once, it, once guns are used and once shootings happen, guns can tip the scales in extraordinary ways and they can do it very quickly. Hayden says the program is off to a good start. 16 new gun cases came before the court on Monday and Tuesday alone. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. State wildlife officials have been testing deer shot by hunters in the state for COVID-19. The new figures show around 15% of the deer sampled have tested positive for antibodies, indicating that they had the illness at one point. State deer and moose biologist Martin Fian says the testing is designed to see if the coronavirus might mutate in the animals. He says another focus is to try to determine how deer contracted the virus. We collected our samples the first week of December predominantly, and at the time, the Delta variant was the most common variant within the human population. And with the results, when they sequenced some of the nasal swabs from the deer, they found uh, the Delta variant. He says there's no evidence that the virus can be transmitted to humans through the consumption of venison. The forecast increasing clouds tonight, the lows around 47, showers with some thunderstorms possible tomorrow, the highs near 57 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Nita Aljabarin has been watching the news out of Ukraine. The scenes of families pouring over the border, more than three million since the Russian invasion began three weeks and one day ago. I see myself in these kids. I went through this. I exactly fear pain. I know how that feels. And I really hate to see other family, like, leaving home, maybe, like, leaving part of their hearts in there. Nita fled her home in Syria when she was just 13. So she has an idea of what's next for Ukrainian kids whose lives have changed forever in an instant. This is not an easy experience and this is not fun, but it will definitely shape who you're going to be in the future and it will definitely teach you a lot. Nita is one of three people I talked with this week about the experience of being a refugee, what it feels like, how it shapes you. I'm Viet Thanh Nguyen. He fled Vietnam when he was four. He's now an author and professor. My name is Nida Aljabarin. We heard from her a moment ago. She left Syria as a seventh grader. My first name is uh, Maywand and my last name is uh, Basiri. A translator who'd worked for U.S. forces. He flew out of Kabul with his wife and son hours before the Afghan government fell to the Taliban. He loved his life there, he told me. My life was simple, beautiful life. I had a beautiful family. Simple is the same word Nita used to describe her life in Syria. It was very simple. Um, me, my parents, and my siblings lived outside of like a village, surrounded by like olive trees. 
we would walk to school every day. Um, it was very like simple, peaceful life. Viet doesn't remember much about his life in Vietnam, but there are things that nearly 50 years later stay with him. I'm not even sure that they're real, but the fragments I have are all actually mostly related to war, like meeting an American soldier bouncing on his knee or thinking I've seen a, a tank in the streets with uh, North Vietnamese soldiers on it because our town was the first one captured in the final invasion of 1975. For many Ukrainians right now, the decision to flee has been abrupt. One day you're safe, the next you're not. We heard that sudden urgency and the stories of each of the people we talked to, including my want. Tell me about the day that you left. Uh, it was very chaotic because before leaving Afghanistan, I was, uh, uh, I did not want to actually come to America because uh, I always thought that, you know, uh, life is... Uh, not easy, especially starting everything from scratch. Uh, but uh, provinces were falling and uh, areas were taken over by uh, the uh, Taliban. So uh, me and my family decided that I could be an easy target because I worked so long for the American forces. But uh, we did not know that it's gonna happen so fast. Even when I got to the uh, airport, uh, I did not know that after 24 hours, everything will collapse. So did you know when you left that, that you wouldn't be going back, at least for, for a long time? Uh, no. Uh, I always thought, like in the back of my mind, I always thought that there's a bridge uh, that connects me back to my uh, home country. But uh, when I got to Doha, there I saw in the news that what's going on in Afghanistan. And that moment I thought that that bridge that connects me back to my home country is destroyed for now. <sighs> And you saw that where, on a, on a TV in the airport? or where? Yes, at the airport. I was waiting to uh, get to another flight from Doha to DC. And uh, at the airport, I did not have a phone to uh, call back uh, my parents, and I panicked. I borrowed someone else's phone, and I called them, and I said, what's going on? I want to come back. I don't want to go with my flight to all the way to DC. And my parents said that, don't worry, uh, for right now, nothing is, 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 is bad. And uh, you're uh, returning back to Kabul. It's not going to affect uh, anything. So uh, the better option would be to uh, go ahead and uh. Uh, go to America. So your instinct was, I should go home. I got to get back to Kabul. And your parents were saying, no, go, go, go. Be safe. Yes. For Nita, it was war, but also a series of tragedies that pushed the family into leaving their home in Dara, Syria. How did your family decide to leave? My family at first actually did not want to leave um, until um, one day my eldest brother got an asthma attack, and so we had to drive him to the hospital. And so that night, I remember it was really tough because I could hear the shootings, I could hear the bombings everywhere, and so it was hard to leave the home and take him to the hospital. And an hour away before we arrived there, they stopped us and they told us that we can't enter the hospital because there's a lot of bombings. So my brother ended up passing away before he got to the hospital. And then a few months after, my dad also got shot in his leg. And then our neighbor's house got burned out with the people in them. And so that point, really, my parents were like, yeah, we can see our like how it's going to keep going. So oh my, the, gosh. my dad made the decision like the night before we left. And then I just woke up like four in the morning and my mom told me, yeah, today we have to leave. So we just took like 
few clothes with us and then i remember there was like a van and there was a full of people like there was already six families in there and we were just all like squeezing in there and we had to like be covered so <laughs> no one can catch us we sneaked out of syria to al zatari camp this is in jordan yes both nita and viet ended up in refugee camps after they left their homes you arrive, Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. This is summer of 1975. What's your first memory there? What do you remember? I remember the barracks and of course when you're young and your parents are taking care of you and you're surrounded by other children, it can actually seem like fun, uh, a fun kind of a camp. But of course that wasn't the reality and uh, I've certainly seen photographs in retrospect of a time in those camps and there were lots and lots of people, uh, our lives were completely displaced. People had lost everything, so the pictures show people just trying to adjust to their new realities when their new realities were really devastating. People who'd lost everything. That's a pretty good description for what Nita's family faced, too, in that refugee camp in Jordan. They gave us, like, a tent and some blankets, food, um, and they told us, yeah, this is your new home. And I was like, no way. <laughs> this is not where I want to live. But it was... I was thankful that I was able to escape out of the war. It was, I was just like, at that point in my life, I, I was just so sad. I, I was like, this is it. Like, I left my rest of my families. I left my cousins. I left my uncles. What What is this? There's no friends here. There's no family here. But but you were, you were safe. Yeah. I think my, I was like, I think my parents made the right decision. Even the right decisions come at a price. But each of the people I talk to has built a new life. Nita will graduate from Syracuse University in the spring, having studied pre-med. She wants to work with refugees. My wand is helping other refugees get settled here in the U.S. with Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. And Viet won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and is a professor at the University of Southern California. All are settled now, but their identities will forever be tied to being a refugee. And that's on each of their minds as they watch the images of people leaving Ukraine. When I see children are suffering, when I see women and elderly are suffering, it gives me all the images that I have uh, uh, from my own country. And uh, as a human being, wherever we are, if you're in America, if you're in Europe, uh, we should have open arms for the Ukrainians and we should feel their pain. And I can feel their pain uh, more than anyone else because uh, I come from a country that's been torn apart by war. So uh, I urge uh, people to uh, have respect for the refugees that they arrive in seeking refuge, looking for a safe future. I can only say to them that I feel for them. I've been in their place and it's a place of terror because you've lost so much, you've left so much behind and you don't know what the future holds for you. And none of us knows what the future holds for them. But I would say that uh, looking at my own experience among Vietnamese refugees, many of us remain traumatized by what happened, but as a community, we, we survived and we, we built new lives and we were able, we are able to tell our own stories and claim our own voices. Part of the story is that not all refugees have been welcomed with open arms. That is something Nita noted. Refugees are refugees regardless of where are they came from or what color is their eyes or how they look. I think all refugees just should receive the same respect and help from anywhere they go to. It shouldn't be like, 
more sad to see Ukraine's refugees than Syrians or anywhere else because at the end, we're all humans. The task ahead for the humans rushing out of Ukraine is rebuilding their lives, finding a sense of place, of home. I questioned Nita and my wand about that. If I were to ask you, where is home? What would you say? Where is home? Where is home? Home is where you're safe, you're secure, and you're not worried that something's gonna bad happen to your family. That's home. Does America feel like home now? Yeah. Honestly, if we are going to define home at first, it's the place that provides you with security, it provides you with all the resources that you need to grow up. The refugees leaving Ukraine must look forward to new homes for now, even as the ones they've left behind, the country they've left behind, still call. Nita wrote about that in a poem, and she shared it with me as we concluded our conversation. I set a foot in the street, not knowing why my body needs. My thoughts fight among themselves, bleeding into tears. I don't recognize the look in my grandfather's eyes. He looks as if he's about to face his worst fear. The fear turns into a teardrop. He takes his glasses off, but the tear is stubborn. It refuses to leave his face. Oh, grandfather, our house key is lost, and the doors cry for those who left. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, improving air quality in schools can be expensive, so advocates hope money set aside under the Biden plan will help. That story's ahead here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com slash GBFB, and Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Union Square, Somerville, museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Now by appointment, stanhopeframers.com. In business news, schools and businesses that stock Massachusetts-based hood milk products could see a shortage. The company temporarily shut down all of its plants earlier this week. Hood officials say the company's network was the victim of a cybersecurity problem. During the shutdown, Hood was unable to process milk and needed to dispose of some milk products. Hood says some customers may experience a temporary delay in deliveries as a result. On Wall Street today, stocks closed the week higher. Dow was up 273 points, or three-quarters of a percent, at 34,754. NASDAQ was up 279 points, or 2%, at 13,894. And the S&P 500 was up 51 points, or one and a quarter percent, at 44,63. Marketplace will have all the day's business news coming up in about 10 minutes at 6.30 here on WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex dedicated to creating transformative medicines for people with serious diseases like severe sickle cell disease. Learn more at vrtx.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it 
to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. In the forecast, we'll have increasing clouds tonight, low of 47, showers and th- some thunderstorms tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EF Gap Year, offering short-term summer programs abroad for students who want to get out and experience the world through hands-on learning. More at efgapyear.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Let's face it, two years ago, if I started talking about ventilation, you might have just yawned and tuned me out. But the COVID pandemic has highlighted just how much the air we breathe matters, especially in our schools. Air quality experts say the health benefits of better air quality go far beyond COVID. But many schools face major challenges when it comes to making these upgrades. NPR's Maria Godoy has more. Not many people can say the pandemic has made their job easier, but in some ways, Tracy Washington Enger can. You know, it it is such a hallelujah moment, absolutely. Enger works at the Environmental Protection Agency's Indoor Environments Division. For more than 25 years, she's been fighting to improve the air quality inside of America's schools. Because the benefits of doing so are well-documented and substantial. When a room is better ventilated, influenza rates drop, the number of asthma attacks go down, Reading and math test scores go up. One of the things that has been a real mission for us has been to help schools recognize that creating healthy learning environments is really connected to health and academic performance. But there are lots of competing demands for limited school budgets, and getting school districts to focus on indoor air quality hasn't been easy. Often, she says, it took some kind of crisis. When they found the mole problem, when their asthma rates were kind of going through the roof, then they started to seek out that kind of help with indoor air quality, and they would, and they would find us. Then came the COVID pandemic, spread by virus particles that can linger in the air. The key to clearing out those infectious particles, good ventilation and air filtration. Suddenly, finally, Lots of people have started to pay attention to indoor air quality. And it's about time, says Joseph Allen. He directs Harvard's Healthy Buildings program. The way we design and operate our buildings has been an afterthought for too long. Even though, Allen says, the health and academic benefits of good ventilation in schools have been seen repeatedly in different countries and ages. We see benefits in kindergartners, we see benefits in high schoolers, we see benefits in college students and middle schoolers, every age group. Allen says understanding these wider benefits of better ventilation beyond COVID is vital. I'm a parent. You think about all the things we do to help our kids succeed. But to think that the air quality in their school and other factors like acoustics and lighting are all influencing their performance, but we just don't pay attention to them. It's a gross oversight, and it speaks to our neglect of school infrastructure that has gone on for too long. That's why Allen applauded the new emphasis on school ventilation in the Biden administration's national COVID-19 preparedness plan. The plan encourages schools to improve air quality using funds from the American Rescue Plan Act. Anissa Hemming of the Center for Green Schools says one third of all schools have outdated HVAC systems. Some don't even have mechanical systems to bring in fresh air. Surveys conducted by the center find that that aging infrastructure has been a major obstacle to improving air quality in schools. We keep hearing the same challenge, which is that school buildings are in bad shape. And so they need, in some cases, pretty major renovations in order to implement some of these recommendations. But that kind of work takes months of planning. 
There's no clear data on how many schools have made ventilation upgrades so far, but the EPA's Tracy Enger says interest in the agency's guidance for schools has soared in the past year. Finally, she says, people are coming to the mountain. What we are seeing is this moment turning into a movement for improving indoor air quality in schools and creating healthier learning spaces. A February analysis found school districts already have plans to spend more than $4 billion in federal relief funds for HVAC upgrades. While that's just a fraction of the spending needed to get schools in good condition, many agree it's a step in the right direction. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Today is the 100th anniversary of the first American bat mitzvah. The ceremony marks the coming of age of young Jewish girls and paves the way to a larger role in religious life. Dina Pritchett reports on the history and future of this tradition. 12-year-old Nomi Klein-Solmson has been practicing for her bat mitzvah for months. She's been learning to chant her Torah portion and translating the Hebrew to come up with her own interpretation of its words. Because the Torah was meant to be discussed, and I get to be part of that discussion. I get to have my own voice. Since at least the 14th century, boys have held bar mitzvah services, adding their voices to the Jewish community. But not girls. There were some early ceremonies in Europe and some confirmation services in reform synagogues. But the first American bat mitzvah didn't happen until 1922. That's when Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan bat mitzvahed his daughter, Judith. He always joked that he initiated the rite for four reasons, Judith being the first and his younger daughters being the second, third, and fourth reason. Rabbi Carol Balin is Professor Emerita of Jewish History at Hebrew Union College and working on a book about early bat mitzvahs. Unlike girls today, Kaplan didn't actually read from the Torah, which was kind of the point of the ceremony her father created. He never intended it as a gateway to full and regular involvement in religious life as it is for boys. We're young girls. Boys did things different. You know, we didn't compare in those days. Rhoda Shapiro had one of the first bat mitzvahs at her temple in Cleveland. It was 1950, and the ceremony was still pretty rare. Shapiro didn't read from the Torah, and her bat mitzvah was Friday night instead of the big Saturday morning service. But it was groundbreaking. Oh my gosh, my knees were shaking. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. By the end of the 1950s, half of conservative temples and a third of reform reported holding some sort of bat mitzvah. And Rabbi Carol Balin says that as the ceremony spread, girls wanted it to be more than just symbolic. Girls sort of start to take the bull by the horns and not only ask, in some cases demand, that they be given full rights like their male counterparts. And that's what happens. With more bat mitzvahs and with second wave feminism, girls argued that they should read from the Torah, be counted in a minion, the quorum of adults required for community prayer. And their mothers began joining temple boards or seeking out bat mitzvahs that weren't available when they were younger. These girls at the age of 12 or 13, they step into the spotlight and they transform Jewish life so that by the time the first woman ordained as a rabbi in this country, 1972, she has girls half her age to thank for paving the way. Over the past hundred years, the bat mitzvah has gone from radical innovation to mainstream expectation. 
And now congregations are expanding the ritual, adapting it for trans and non-binary people or people with disabilities. For 12-year-old Nomi Klein-Solmson, it's a legacy she's proud to be part of. I feel kind of stronger because I'm adding to it and I'm making it more powerful. It's almost like a gift, kind of, and I'm really happy to receive it. There's a temptation to see all ritual as ancient, handed down from God on Mount Sinai. But the bat mitzvah is young. The ceremony is the embodiment of how religions change and adapt, and testimony to the power of 12-year-old girls. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchett. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts, committed to COVID safety. Professional training, recreational cooking and baking classes, private events, and more, cambridgeculinary.com. And Tanglewood. A trip to Tanglewood is an escape to extraordinary. Enjoy music by BSO, Boston Pops, and more amidst the beauty of the Berkshire Hills. More at tanglewood.org.